Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome contributor Kenneth Shrupp back to the show. Kenneth, good to catch up with you again. I understand you have a little change of scenery for, for a brief time. How's that working out? Well, yes, I'm coming in today from Houston, Texas, the land of $4.97 per pound uh, <laughs> New York strip steaks. You're Very speaking happy my language. Very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Big change from California. From, from those who, who are getting to meet you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell me about what you do. Well, I have a day job where I serve as a public affairs consultant, uh, but I like to put a lot of my time into something called the California Review, which is a statewide independent journal covering politics and policy in the fine golden state of California. Well, and I wanted to congratulate you because I I see where uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is popping champagne corks and and announcing a $97 billion, I'm putting this in air quotes, surplus. I'd love for you to explain to us a little bit about this uh, surplus myth and the fiscal cliff that is uh, probably a lot more of a reality. So let me first start off by breaking down what he really means by surplus. Uh, By surplus, he means this is the money that's left over from making the minimum contribution requirements to existing debt. Uh, This doesn't cover any existing liabilities California has. That's sort of the equivalent of, say, you know, having tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Your minimum payment is, you know, a few hundred dollars a month. So you make that minimum payment so that your interest doesn't go up every month. That's sort of where we're at. So this $97 billion is just what's left over after meeting the minimum obligations to not have the creditors come after California and hurt our credit score. Okay, it sounds uh, it sounds a little less uh, fantastical when you put it that way. Um, talk to me about uh, California's fiscal cliff, though. I've been hearing for actually for years that uh, California's spending is uh, in danger of, of catching up with it. Where, where do they stand right now? So, uh, depending on who you ask, whether it's the state of California or analysts, uh, there's any the state is anywhere between three hundred billion dollars and over one trillion dollars and unfunded pension liabilities, um, which in those discrepancies are between whether or not you expect California to get a rate of return of 3% on its investments, which is, you know, pretty low, or 7%, which is the state's estimate, which is unreasonably high. You just can't expect 7% a year. So you probably got somewhere about $800 billion in unfunded liabilities. Then you have hundreds of billions of dollars more in these sort of bond obligations and deferred maintenance on infrastructure because we don't spend our gas taxes on roads. That's that's one thing that we really don't do well. We spend it on social programs. Um, So uh, to make matters worse, California also has this super volatile state income because they instead of taxing you know, most people, they just douse the rich. And they tax everyone way too much, but the rich really get doused. And it's all in these capital gains taxes, which have been roaring the last two years with the easy quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve, um, just, just making stock valuations skyrocket. But now that the market is crashing, this money's all gone. So that's why the California... Uh, legislative analyst office, which is this nonpartisan actual government office, says there's a 95 percent certainty that California will fall off the fiscal cliff by fiscal year 2023, uh, uh, sorry, 2025, 2026, um, which is very soon. Yeah, that's really close. Right. So, you know, when you hit when you hit this point at which you have to adjust your spending where by fiscal cliff, I mean, the point at which 
you either have to cut spending, raise taxes to meet basic financial commitments, or your interest on your debt is just going to skyrocket out of control, right? Um, there are a lot of factors that are sort of making this fiscal cliff far worse. Uh, you know, the fastest growing sector of California's population is retirees, who benefits are paid to, who are no longer working, who do not pay taxes on those benefits. Uh, 85% of Californians leaving the state are people who are of working age. Um, so you have a shrinking tax base, growing number of pensioners. Uh, it's it's a re- and the most volatile revenue in the country. These corporations are leaving. Stock markets are probably going to be down for the next you know three. We're in a bear market for the next three or four years. Wow. Who knows? Um, yeah, the the state's finances are going to implode very soon. Okay, I have to ask this. I mean, this this can't be just limited to California, but it seems like California is a little more cavalier about this than most states. Is it simply the size of its economy that uh, that makes politicians confident? Ah, yeah, yeah, we got this. It's going to work itself out. Or is there something else at play? Uh, I think it's the unlimited population. I mean, this idea that the state's population is never uh you know, fallen um, in its entire history. Actually, California's population has declined for the last two years, for the first time ever. Um, you know, a, a feeling that a feeling that the economy will continue to grow at its current rate after they've kicked out all the industries and uh, tech is all that's left, and even that's leaving now too for greener pastures. Uh, to be honest, I, I think this this attitude relates to the fact that California has never really faced massive challenges. That, that when you live in a permanent state of abundance and you know more is always coming, you never have to think and prepare about the future. But now we're coming to reckon with this time of, of uh, unlimited abundance mindset that has led us to this point. Wow. Okay, but uh, I, I don't think it's the politicians necessarily who uh, are going to be the ones who have to pay the price here. It sounds like the, the ones who get to pay the price are going to be the, the taxpayers, those that remain. Right. Uh, the emphasis, taxpayers, people in the middle class, people in the upper middle class, people in the upper class, um, th- their taxes are going to have to either go up massively or services to them are going to be cut massively or both is more likely for when when this when this hits in the next few years. And the, and the timeline keeps going up, uh, you know, the more interest rates rise, which, which they will have to to combat inflation. Wow. So I guess uh, that uh, exodus that we have seen, and by the way, I live in, in one of the states where a lot of those Californians have, uh, have fled to, to find refuge. Uh, Idaho, Utah, uh, Wyoming, Montana. I mean, there is just no shortage of people who have moved here from California. And you'll find that a lot of them that you talk to, you why did, why did you leave? And, and a lot of them say it was just getting too expensive. And they didn't mean because, uh, you know, the merchants were being greedy. It's because the, the politicians and government was was becoming untenable in terms of its cost. Right. The state squeezes and squeezes until people give up and leave. And uh, I mean, it's, I don't plan on leaving as of yet. Uh, one of the crazy people is going to stay. Uh, but, you know, we see this California that's becoming more and more a land of very wealthy people, maybe upper middle class of, of these of of professionals and people in tech, uh, maybe some some of the uh, entertainment industry, and then just a lot of very poor people. It's, 
it's really a sad state of affairs. Okay, I have to ask you this then, Kenneth. Are the, do the poor people remain because they have limited resources to, to relocate, or um, is it a choice? Because I get the impression from you that uh, in spite of some of the difficulties, it's a wonderful place to live. You love living in California, am I correct? I love living in California, and let's be honest, uh, family is much more important to a lot of people than having an extra $5,000 in the bank account. And you can't really fault people for that. You know, it, it, it might be fun to try to project motives on people saying like, oh, they just want things from the government. Or, uh, But if you talk to people, the reality is like they stay in California because this is where their family is. This is where they're from. This is their home. Um, and, you know, they don't they don't understand what, what's happening, why these things are happening in the state. And people are waking up to this, um, especially, especially the largest demographic uh, or fastest growing demographic in California, which is uh, Hispanic voters. They're people, all these Democrats thought they could take them for granted forever. But, you know, these, these are people who are highly entrepreneurial, highly industrious. Uh, they look at they look at all these obstacles to starting their businesses, what the source of all the problems is. And, and there's a huge revolt happening. I'm I'm actually quite optimistic about the state of California in the next decade because people will have had enough and and the demographic shift could result in new leadership i i have to ask you this though is there any is there any way out of this without some pretty serious pain on on the part of the citizens of california it seems like that government spending has got to cut back but uh, that sounds like it's going to be a painful process like getting a cavity filled uh we're, we're gonna have we're gonna have a few very difficult years uh it, it is going to be bad I think. Um, but but that's that's just the consequence of 30 years of one party rule and unchecked spending and an unchecked, prog- unchecked, sorry, progressive agenda that has brought the state to ruin. OK, we're down to about 30 seconds here. Are there any names that stand out that you see as up and coming leaders who might take the state in a different direction fiscally? Uh, and the California Republican Party, uh, there's Kevin Kiley. Uh, he's a young uh, young, highly effective lawyer, state, state assemblyman running for Congress now. Uh, there, there's an independent named Michael Schellenberger who made actually the biggest media waves of any gubernatorial candidate challenging Gavin Newsom this cycle. Um, you know, there's, I, I, I think that we have to look to both independents and Republicans and maybe have an open mind on um, what kind of leadership we can expect in the state. All right. Again, we are talking with Kenneth Shrupp. He is a Young Voices contributor. Kenneth, where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter by typing in my name, uh, Kenneth Shrupp, uh, last name is spelled S-C-H-R-U-P-P, or go to the California Review website at calrev.org. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices, and we're very happy to welcome Gabriella Hoffman back to the program. She's a Young Voices contributor and a host of the District of Conservation podcast. Follow her on Twitter at, at Gabby underscore Hoffman. Abby and Gabby, welcome to the show. Good to be back on Moving Forward. Thank you for having me, Brian. Well, you've got a topic here that is really near and dear to my heart because I was raised hunting and fishing, and I love it still. I've tried to, to give my kids the same opportunities. So I, my heart skipped a beat when I read the headline, Lead Ban Would Undermine True Conservation and Outdoor Access. Give me the lowdown. Who's, whose brainchild is this? 
Well, this is a perennial effort, largely under Democratic administrations. We saw this first under Obama. Now we're seeing it again, but even up to the ante now under the Biden administration. And they this first before I'll talk about the rule that just came out actually shortly after my piece was published. But the Biden administration is entering into what they call a sue and settle agreement. And the Center for Biological Diversity petitioned the Interior Department to undo the opening of 2.2 million acres of new hunting and fishing opportunities on public lands for fishing and hunting, obviously, under the guise of lead fragments being very toxic and poisonous to endangered species, particularly raptors. So they had like a two-punch approach here with undoing the opening of public lands, which betrays the mission statement of the Interior Department for safeguarding and allowing public lands access, an accusation President Trump was formerly accused of. But now we're actually seeing those attacks on public lands right clear and center under this administration and then saying that, well, it's because of lead, we have to undo this. But they're opening up similarly big parcels, millions of acres of land. But now with after the publishing of my article, I didn't have anything to do with their rule decision, of course, or the rulemaking process. But they announced retroactively they're going to ban 19 national fish and wildlife refuges from allowing people to use land lead ammunition and possibly lead tackle. And then for any future opening of public lands, national wildlife refuges in specific in specificity, there is going to be no use of lead altogether. My understanding is it applies not only to hunting for ammunition, but also to tackle. And again, they're going off of lead is toxic, but they're not explaining what type of lead is used in these accessories. Wow. I mean, I I remember back in 1990 when it became the law that you could not hunt migratory wild or waterfowl with uh, lead shot. And, you know, we grumbled, but we we ponied up and bought the more expensive steel shot and whatnot. Um it it was it was a disaster. Now there may be some better options now with bismuth and things like this, but um, you know lead has a long history of <laughs> being a good dense you know heavy metal. Um, where where is it presumed that these raptors are are getting a hold of it? I mean, it's, how would they how would they manage to ingest it? I believe their reasoning is rooted in they think that maybe if they're hunting or scavenging, maybe dead animals that lead fragments are left over in animals or carcasses. I really don't understand where maybe whenever they're hunting, even outside of, let's say, finding carcasses, or if I I think they're exaggerating how much lead is left over in these public spaces. Most people, there are some people who don't abide by this, but there's often campaign to know this. You don't leave a trace. If you're hunting with lead ammunition or you're fishing with lead tackle, you're usually taking those fragments with you home you're not leaving those behind so i think they're just stirring up the pot and conflating lead fragments with solid lead which nobody ingests solid lead if you've gone fishing or hunting using lead lead properties it's very minute and you're not normally ingesting it and when you're let's say field dressing an animal you're taking out the lead fragments and in my piece i cited this distinction between lead fragments and solid lead when the CDC and this North Dakota Health Agency bound, came together and conducted the study assessing blood toxicity levels with lead. They found it to be ins- insignificant, statistically speaking. There's only a 0.3 difference. So they talk a great deal about the sphere associated with lead. They don't define what lead is and how minute it is used in these activities. And then it's statistically null 
when the findings are revealed. So I think they're just instilling fear in people to put it blankly, to put it pointly. And I spoke to a few wildlife biologists last week, actually, when I was in Montana for an outdoor writers conference for an organization I belong to. And they were telling me that a lot of these birds could be captively held. Maybe they're ingesting it that way or something of that nature. So it's quite biased, I think, in terms of how these birds are certainly digesting it. It's not it's not conclusive. There's a lot of debate surrounding. Is it really a danger to raptors? I mean, you can't really claim that, especially with bald eagles now bouncing back and and being delisted from the Endangered Species Act. So they must not be ingesting lead fragments much anymore, thankfully, because it's good to see them, you know, proliferating and existing without any you know, problems. So I see birds bouncing back. I see raptors that are supposedly under threat by lead bouncing back. So that, and also just hearing different opinions on lead and and its supposed toxicity levels and then the danger of using very small, minute portions, it leads me to believe that they're just fear mongering and finding ways to attack hunting and fishing through these means. Yeah. You point out in your article that uh, one of the, the things that's really insulting about this is conservation groups or groups like the Center for Biological Diversity are actually accusing, you know, sportsmen and sportswomen of endangering, you know, the wildlife that uh, that they're out there enjoying. Talk to me about how hunters and fishermen and those who enjoy the outdoors actually put a great deal of, of money into conservation efforts. It would be counterintuitive for sportsmen and women to call for the extermination of wildlife that they pursue. And I think what people forget is it's not just getting a trophy or getting an animal or a fish. You're going there to largely enjoy your surroundings because there are many days in the field you're not going to be miss catches. You will not get the bullseye you need on an animal during hunting season. So there are many days you're going to be contemplative and you're just going to enjoy a nice sunrise. Maybe you'll see wildlife from the distance. So it's an all encompassing experience and sportsmen and women recognize at the turn of the 20th century, that if they exceed their harvest, if they engage in market game hunting, there won't be wildlife to pursue and enjoy in the future. So they came together through this legislative piece called the Pittman Robertson act. It's been in implemented since 1937. It's one of the few good measures signed into law by FDR. I want to put it out there. One of the few good things he did uh, to, to do this. And so it created a regimen where you will pay into excise taxes. So on sporting goods, guns, ammunition, hunting licenses, bow, archery, tackle, I think even motor oil for boats as well. So it's a big list of items. Uh, first under the Pittman-Robertson, which applies to hunting. And then the Dingle-Johnson largely applies to fishing, tackle, and marine-related Equipment. So there are two different types of laws associated with this. Dingle Johnson was 1950. So both of these laws working in sync with one another, according to one of the universities, I think it was North Carolina State University, the contributions of sportsmen and women total about 60 to 80 percent. And they're contributing more than these groups like Center for Biological Diversity, who just sue and sue and sue just to get lawyers fees to recoup fees. They're not doing anything. They're in fact, stalling conservation efforts by interfering with public land hunting, public land fishing by attacking lead, tackle and ammunition. Yeah, I unfortunately living out west have had uh, more than than a few encounters with uh, the Center for Biological Diversity. And and I think uh, when when you refer to uh, grifters waging disinformation campaigns, that's like that's exactly what they do. And they're very, very well funded. But it's, it's ultimately about keeping people off the land. And that's 
to me, that that's very counterproductive when you consider the people who want to get out there, exactly like you say, they want to get out there so they can enjoy it. It's in their interest to leave no trace, to protect what they're doing and to make sure that they're leaving it nice for whoever else wants to enjoy it. Absolutely. And that's what the public land ethos in this country instructs us to do. It's not codified into law, but there are standards that have been passed down from year to year, generation to generation. And of course, sportsmen and women are going to leave it better, but it's these opportunists who just have lots of money who are muddying what conservation is in this country. They want us to have a preservationist framework, and that's very dangerous. I appreciate you uh, sounding the alarm on this, and I hope that more people catch wind of it and get their minds around it. Gabriella Hoffman, tell everybody where they can find your writing, where they can follow you on social media. Head over to my Young Voices profile. All of my past work with them, including this article, is listed there. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, denoted by blue checkmark. I have YouTube and also listen to District of Conservation. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me again. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're very happy to welcome Jorge Velasco back to the show. Jorge, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, you wear a couple of other hats. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me again, Brian. I am happily born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Proud Texan at heart. Currently attend George Mason University, um, a rising sophomore at the moment. And I am a research assistant for Ballotpedia, the American Encyclopedia of Politics, as well as the executive comm staffer at the moment for the American Conservation Coalition. Well, I'm looking at an article that you wrote recently for freethepeople.org. Gun reform bill is anything but a solution. And boy, has that drum for gun control been banging hard in Washington, D.C. Tell us what's what exactly is being proposed by the Biden administration and a number of members of Congress. And what's the likelihood it's going to, to gain some traction? So right off the bat, um, it's very unlikely to be passed in the Senate due to its very uh, contradicting, um, you know, reform for the most part. The House passed a very sweeping gun reform package called the Protect Our Kids Act that includes a ban on high-capacity magazines through a government buyback program. Now, we've seen government buyback programs kind of fall through the cracks in places like Australia, England, you name it. Um, but weeks before the, the bill was passed, Biden called on, quote-unquote, assault weapons to be banned, which has been previously attempted before from 1994 to 2004. Wow. Okay, so I'm, I'm breathing a little easier knowing that it's not likely to get passed, but at the same time, as long as there's noise being made about it, it seems like there there is some danger. What do you see as, uh, is, is there any credible danger from this bill? And if so, what would that look like? You know, I wouldn't say there's any credibility to it, per se, because, as I mentioned before, it has been um, tried before in 1994, which there was a quote unquote assault weapons ban that lasted for about 10 years and was not renewed by Congress in 2004 uh, when it expired. So at the moment, Democrats can control activists, Biden, uh, you name it, are claiming that this ban reduced mass shootings wholesale. Um, however, several studies, including a DOJ-funded study and the RAND Corporation, have found this claim to be false and inconclusive, respectively. 
Um, as you know, per se for the legality of an assault weapons ban, it's a very, very rocky one, Brian. Um, in 2008, some might remember the Supreme Court's decision and District of Columbia v. Heller that states that any government-related attempt to restrict an individual's right to keep and bear arms is blatantly unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Wow. Well, and, you know, I understand there's another decision that, that should be coming out here very soon that might further, you know, um, inf- reinforce that, uh, that notion that this is an individual right and not some collective right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and going back to Biden's quote unquote assault weapons proposal that completely bans a specific category of guns, uh, this would certainly be a new litmus test for gun related policy and would absolutely stretch the checks of the Constitution. Fairly good, Brian. The name of the game is legal precedent, and that's exactly what Biden's roadblock is here. Not only is the legal fortitude of the Heller decision in his way, but Satano v. Massachusetts in 2016 found that not only did the Massachusetts court contradict Heller, but back the notion that firearm ownership is legal. So to reiterate, Brian, banning assault weapons specifically is just a non-starter and would almost certainly be challenged in the courts. Well, I just wish they'd give it up, but I guess this is just one of those perennial things that just keeps coming back. You know, I, I'm very concerned because I, in, in my perception – the Democrats are, are likely facing a bit of a reckoning come the, the midterms this November. And, and I have to wonder if maybe this uh, this push and this urgency to try to get something through is because they know that uh, their opportunity to do so is limited. I, how do you feel about that? Does that does that hold any water with you? It's interesting you bring that up, Brian, um, because polling throughout the entire year, uh, for the most part, has shown that Republicans are holding a very strong hold over Democrats for the midterms, both in the the House and the Senate. So when it comes to action on gun reform, progressives are mostly all talk and no game. And it's not necessarily uh, as a result of what we're seeing with the polling, but it is going to become more and more consistent as mainstream Democrats like Chuck Schumer continue to push this narrative that there is a gun violence epidemic in this country, and it all starts with banning assault weapons. Um, I would say their main response is to immediately immediately call on new legislation after a tragic mass shooting, which, for the most part, the politicization of national tragedies is a conversation for another time. But progressive lawmakers have not enacted any significant law in the 14 years since the landmark Heller decision, which is, you know, a lot to say about whether or not they are really more bark than bite. I feel a lot better after hearing you spell it out like this, Jorge. So thank, thank you for, for soothing my nerves. I, you know, I, I just have this, uh, this sense of, of defiance that, uh, look, the, the so-called assault weapons ban back in 94, which sunsetted in 2004, I believe I've seen a number of stories which indicate that studies that have followed that and its effort to, well, how exactly did it help to reduce crime? It didn't. To my knowledge, it didn't reduce crime in any significant or measurable way. No, it absolutely didn't. And it's more of a message towards how um, Democrat controlled cities is responding to mass shootings and just gun violence in general. And so when Biden claimed in his national address that a previous ban on quote unquote assault weapons from 1994 to 2004 actually reduced mass shootings, that was never the case, Brian. So as I mentioned before, the University of Pennsylvania study funded by you know, the DOJ, as well as the Rand Corporation found exactly that. So 
Biden's proposed ban and this new gun reform package is really no better. Um, Republicans really should be focused rather than antagonizing law-abiding gun owners um, and, and gun reform activists per se. They should be trying to push you know, more bipartisan support that will actually speak to the medium of America, to the suburbs that they are trying to win so, so harshly, um, which is kind of the red wave, quote unquote, that they are touting so much. What are your thoughts on red flag laws? Because if there's one aspect that I do see the possibility of, of there being some compromise and bipartisan you know, consensus on, that's, that's an area where I, I do see some Republicans saying, yeah, I could probably get behind that. What are your thoughts on it? You know, it's also interesting you bring that up, Brian, because immediately after the, the tragic Uvalde shooting um, about a month ago or so, Mitt Romney was the very first one to say that there should be no federal overreach or oversight regarding background checks. But the place that Republicans should start, like Romney, is at the state level, and that begins with red flag laws. So, for example, you know, encouraging Congress to pass some strong federal law pushed by Democrats is, is also a non-starter. It's, it's very nonsensical and has been for the past 10, 15 years. Um, however, in states where you know, these laws are already in effect, um, measures have shown to have some sort of efficacy towards them to not only reducing gun violence, but trying to, you know, garner some sort of, of uh, resources and uh, backgrounds into mentally ill uh, people who are trying to get their hands on, on a firearm or lack thereof. Yeah, I, I think the big concern I have with, with the red flag laws is they seem to put due process in the back seat. And given, you know, the fact that there's a good chunk of the country that believes if you don't admit that men who say they are women, for instance, the transgender swimmer, and uh, I forget his name, her name. Um, anyway, if you don't agree with that, you know, you are somehow defined as mentally unstable or something. It just seems like the goalposts are so easy to move. It would be very easy to uh, to pigeonhole a large section of the the population just with an accusation and then the inconvenience and the danger that that creates when the police show up well we're here to take your guns someone's accused you of being a threat and we're gonna you know take your guns until we sort it out and get to the bottom of it seems to me that would just invite danger creating situations where there's absolutely no room for error Uh, yeah i think the last thing i would like to say brian um is that like i mentioned before Resources and and laws such as universal background checks and so-called assault weapons bans really do suffer from a multitude of constitutional and and practical defects. First of all, they really wouldn't have um, the impact on gun violence that gun reform advocates and and Democrats alike are claiming to have been um, and for the most part, aren't likely to have stopped or hindered a single mass public shooting in the past two decades. And so when, when we're talking about red flag laws, um, it, it really has to be a conversation about, one, the constitutionality of it, and two, by extension, whether or not it's going to be passed at the federal level or the state level. If it's passed at the state level, then there is more leeway for state governments, state legislators, and, and citizens alike to actually have a say on whether or not um, the theory behind these laws is to address a very serious concern with respect to mass shooters or just trying to confiscate 
um, firearms from from gun, uh, uh, sorry, law-abiding gun owners. Um, and I would like to add, lastly, that one notable exception maybe is that uh, every mass public shooter in recent history passed a background check and legally procured firearms. A good point. We are talking with Jorge Velasco. He's a contributor for Young Voices, and I really appreciated this article of yours. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Welcome back. This is our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Elise Amedro back to the show. And uh, I'm looking at a I'm looking at an article that you've written, Elise, that uh, it's it's making me take a really close second look. The ticking time bomb threatening health care. Now, the cost of everything is going up here lately from gassing up my car to buying groceries. But health care always seems to be the really expensive stuff. Tell me about uh, what is going on in, in health care and uh, what's uh, what's the danger that you see approaching? The danger that I see is that we have different ways through which we pay for healthcare in the U.S., right? We have private insurance and we have Medicaid and Medicare, and those are our government programs. The biggest one is Medicare by far, and it is the one that covers the elderly. And um, it contains several parts. I'm not going to go into details about it. What matters, though, is the part that pays for hospital stays, which is really expensive. Hospitals say we all know (laughs) if we've ever been to the hospital, it's a very expensive thing. Um, It is running out of money, like the fund that pays for that care. And so in a few years, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, there won't be enough money to pay hospitals to take care of Medicare patients. And that's what we're looking at. So it's a ticking time bomb. There is no real um, solution in sight. Uh, That's why I wrote the piece. Like, (laughs) doesn't anyone care that we're running out of money? Uh, Because it's going to have a real impact on people. And like you just said, with inflation going up and healthcare costs going up just much the same as the rest of the economy, uh, this is just accelerating quickly. And we're facing the threat of there not being enough money for everything. So what are we going to do? It's going to have real real life impacts. Okay, now I have to admit, anytime government steps in to fix something, I'm always a little bit skeptical because sometimes they're like, well, that fire. Well, let's put more gas on it. We're going to put that fire. I just got to get more gas. But are there some reforms that could be undertaken that could help uh, address this approaching insolvency? And if so, what are what are some of the reforms that would be worth looking at and pursuing? So. Unfortunately, all the reforms will be somewhat painful. There's no trick around avoiding this insolvency. We just have to find a way to fund it, right? So if the fund is running out of money, we have to collect the money some other way. Uh, Like you said, I I don't like it either when the government gets involved in paying for things. But if that's the the system we have, we at least want it to function. So if we're going to run out of money, Congress can basically do two things. It can either bring in more funding or it can cut spending on care, right? Um, and you can see how uh, there are downsides to, be, to um, each option, right? If you bring in more funding, that means higher taxes. So currently people pay 2.9% um, of payroll tax for Medicare. Um, again, Medicare, that is going bankrupt. So um, we might have to just increase that amount to make it such that it's not bankrupt, or at least not too soon. Um, so that's one way you can do that. Uh, Cutting spending is a lot harder uh, because it means Congress deciding, okay, I'm going to pay less for care, right? So does that mean 
we won't be reimbursing for all the services that people might need, or we will just, you know, if you're, you can stay in the hospital for, for several days, now it's going to be fewer days and then you have to pay for yourself. For yourself. Um, it, it, we're looking at a 9% cut in payments to hospitals. And that has, you know, that impacts not just the, the CEO of the hospital, it impacts every layer of, of workers in those hospitals, physicians for sure, and nurses and administrators. So it's going to have to be painful. It could lead to some, you know, making it a bit more efficient. But I think overall, there's no, there's no happy solution here. The, the best thing we can do, though, is to act quickly. Because the longer we wait, the bigger the problem gets. And, and again, I just want to emphasize, we're talking about um, this This is government assistance primarily for people who are elderly or, or who are, are poor. I mean, th- in other words, this this isn't just, you know, something that everybody's taking advantage of. This is, this is for people who actually really need, you know, some help in, in meeting those bills. Is that right? Yes, to the extent that people are using the services, we can assume that they need them. Um, there is a lot of waste in healthcare, but we don't want to. We don't want the government to decide what is wasteful and what is not, right? Like it should be uh, ideally patients who are empowered to say, "This is the care I need." And if if grandma says, "I need a new hip," <laughs> we better get grandma a new hip, right? Because she she knows what she needs. Um, but so yeah, the, when we cut when we cut spending on on those things, it it means someone else is, is going to have to pay for it if it's that necessary, right? So. It is, it is quite painful to think I, about. I know in your article, you, you have this wonderful turn of phrase, Congress will have to pick its victim. And I don't envy them for doing it, but you know, some tough decisions have got to be made. What are the priorities or how will they prioritize you know, who has to you know, draw the short straw? Sadly, the way things get made in the end in Congress is usually not what you and I might prefer. Um, there are lots of, um, you know, influences on how those decisions get made, uh, primarily one being that the healthcare industry is funding a lot of campaigns uh, and their elections pretty much year round now, like the way we view things, right? So that's that's challenging. I think hospitals are going to, um, I think cuts to hospitals will be really difficult to do. But again, raising taxes is also difficult. I, I can't predict what's going to happen, but I do know that no one's really trying to do anything right now because we don't feel it, right? Like this, this is something that I'm aware of because I study healthcare policy, but I'm assuming most people don't even know that this is a problem. And I want to guess that even lawmakers are not necessarily aware of just how pressing the threat is. Uh, it's interesting to look back to the 90s. We already, it's not the first time we face an insolvency like this one. And in the past, we have had such issues as well because we've started spending much more than than, um, than we thought we would. So the fixes were passed, but they were passed much sooner. Last time it was done, I think the reforms were passed four years before the um, scheduled or like the anticipated date of insolvency. This time we're looking at you know just a few years and we haven't even begun to, to have those conversations. And the reason is no one feels the, the problem and no one wants to address it because everyone knows it's going to be painful. Wow. I, yeah, you, I think you've spelled out the problem very, very clearly. I have to ask, this is, this is my faith in, in the free market, but are there any private sector alternatives that, that are coming to the forefront to help uh, make this less of a problem moving forward? I'm glad you asked, uh, because yes, there are. So I mentioned earlier that Medicare is made of multiple parts. There are different parts of the Medicaid program that pay for different things. The one we're looking at here is the one that pays for hospital services, but there is also a way through which people can get insured, which is called Medicare Advantage, 
So when uh, someone has Medicare Advantage um, insurance, they get to choose a plan that works for them. So this is kind of a private sector option. You're not just taking the insurance that the government is providing you with. You're actually getting to pick, okay, what matters to me? What are the diseases that I have? What are the drugs that I need? And then I pick um, a, a plan based on that. And so those are a lot more dynamic. There's a lot more competition within Medicare Advantage. And that part is is not facing the same threat of insolvency as this part on hospital, um, hospital uh, insurance is facing. So if we are able to, to move more people from this type of payment that's payment to, to hospitals to a sort of insurance that's more private-based, I think we can avoid a lot of the damage. And thankfully, the trend is more and more people are joining Medicare Advantage plans. But I think that that trend could accelerate so that we can kind of soften the blow of the insolvency. On the one hand, I could see that being attractive to members of Congress who don't want to be the bad guy when it comes to making spending cuts. And yet, on the other hand, you know, when you control the purse strings, that's a fair amount of power. And power is very hard for some people to turn loose of. So I I guess they might face a little bit of a conundrum there in trying to decide, you know, what to do. Yeah, it, it will not be easy. And I think it can be a win-win. I, I don't think people are, everyone's going to switch to Medicare Advantage overnight anyways. So it can be a politically palatable thing to do to look at multiple options. But I, I'm pretty sure that any lawmaker will be happy to find ways you know, to, to keep giving Medicare beneficiaries the best care possible, even though it continues to be a very expensive program. Um, you might be aware of that, that um Medicare beneficiaries today get about $3 out of every dollar that they put in during their lifetime of you know, working and saving or, or contributing to Medicare. So there clearly is an imbalance here. And, um, and I think lawmakers have multiple tools at their disposal. They just should start thinking about using them. At least we have about one minute left here. Um, I just want to clarify, you had mentioned when we, when we began the interview that uh, the, the insolvency is... It's it's getting closer. Um, give us an idea of the date. And, and I understand this is actually we have a little bit of a reprieve compared to what to what they had said last year. What's what's the story there? Yeah, last year they told us it was going to be 2026. So then five years out. Uh, now they pushed it back to 2028 because they think that, you know, people used Medicare services more so during the pandemic. And like we weren't sure um, how that was going to plan out, pan out. And now we have a better sense of spending in the coming years. So they push it back to 2028. The truth is the, the past five years, the, the date has been predicted within like the next 10 years. So I think there's no point in arguing over, oh, is it 2026 or 2028? Like, which is it? Uh, what matters is this is happening very soon. And again, we're looking at this decade and, um, and this is just, there's no time to waste. Okay, so the urgency is real. We are talking with Elise Amedro. Um, tell everybody where they can find you and follow you on social media. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E. My last name is Amedro, A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. All right, great to visit with you once again. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, YouTube, Brian. 